Hey, I am Mustafa Sharif. Thank you for watching Urbanistica Talks or listening to Urbanistica Podcast. Today I have all the pleasure to have Fred as a guest in Urbanistica Podcast. Well, I'm a bit nervous, but I hope it's gonna go really well. Fred has uh, his experience are almost double than my age, so I'm really excited about this. Fred is uh, together with Jan Gale. These two people were my inspiration to get to urban planning and design. So now I'm super excited and I will just leave the stage or the microphone to Fred Kent from New York. Hello, Fred. Hi, greetings. Uh, this is very exciting for me. Uh, it actually comes at a very uh, important time in my career because 50 years ago on the 22nd of April uh, 1970, I organized Earth Day in New York City. And uh, it began a long career of, uh, of doing something that I have to say, I never knew what I was going to do next. It was always an iterative process. And I'll show you how that progressed, even through today, how what we're doing now is way different than what we did three years ago, is way different than 20 years ago, is way different than 30, 40, even 50 years ago. So it's a journey that uh, doesn't seem to ever slow down. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, I have to say, it's extraordinary. Yes. Uh, so part of that journey has been a family that actually, in a way, together, my two sons and my wife, Kathy, and I, um, we, my two sons, my oldest son at nine years old told me what I was doing. And the other one, and they grew up with me. And so they were free of a lot of the, the, um, of the kind of required uh, behavior, uh, so to speak, or going to a professional place and becoming a full professional. Uh, they, they took uh, these ideas and made them their own, and they're now leading uh, the actual placemaking X, and Kathy and I are leading something called the Social Life Project. And so, Kathy is your, is your lovely wife. Yes, and, and longtime partner. Uh, uh, I could talk about her for a while, but uh, maybe at the end. So Placemaking X, just literally yesterday, had a had a, a global call around with about 50 people uh, talking about the movement and how it's progressing uh, in every region of this world. This actually looks like the, uh, the, the uh, virus map. Yes. It, it isn't. It's the, where these people are, where they're located. And they're all activists. They're all uh, pretty young. They're all uh, in the prime of their lives in terms of what they're going to be doing uh, as they go into the future. So it's actually a pretty amazing, uh, amazing experience to watch this thing grow way beyond anything that we ever imagined. And, and uh, the term placemaking is a global term and it's being used worldwide uh, by many, many people. And in fact, over the last few years, we've been doing these uh, placemaking weeks. And there was just one in, uh, in Wuhan, actually, last year. Uh, that uh, you know, So a lot of people that are part of this network all know the, the leadership in Wuhan. And so they're all very curious as to how that's going. Last year, there was one in Valencia. And they're, they're all over the world happening. There was one in Chattanooga last year. But this is the movement, and the movement, from my point of view, uh, really started on Earth Day because Earth Day woke us all up to the environment, and it actually woke us up not just to the nature and pollution and things like that. It also woke us up to community and sense of place and sociability, and it connected me with a group of people that I call the golden age of research on public life. Uh, and where I started working with this man, William White, who set up the Street Life Project. And he was doing that at about the same time that Jan Gale uh, was doing his uh, Life Between Buildings work. So there were two parallel efforts. Uh, 
ours was much more data-driven at that time, uh, and theirs was more uh, experiential and, and observation. And then we switched, we flipped it, uh, and we've been doing it differently. So here's Earth Day, and uh, <laughs> I organized this. Wow. <laughs> it's the, the biggest uh, fake news story ever because it was uh, on April, it was April 22nd. It was the first day of spring in people's minds. Uh, we closed Fifth Avenue. The only thing I did was ask to have it closed. The city wanted to close it. They wanted to do something. John Lindsay was the mayor. Uh, it was a great opportunity uh, to, to showcase New York. And so everyone came out, million, maybe a million people. You know, but the real activity was down on Union Square, where we had this pretty amazing uh, event that went on all day. Uh, this was a two-hour event at lunchtime. So, but it, it this picture went around the world and was uh, every newspaper in the world had it. So it really was a catalyst for uh, a really big change that then followed because it had the impression that there was a big following. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, that's sort of when placemaking got started. We didn't call it that. Uh, but what we're now saying, and I'm going towards the to the end, is that we're now saying that placemaking is really the strategy for shaping the future of communities everywhere. And the impact on the planet is going to be extraordinary. And now with this uh, CODA-19, uh, it's even more critical. And I'll talk a little bit about that as we go through this. Yes. So um, there's some really interesting uh, evolutions going on. And the mayor of, of Paris is one of those that's really leading a very different vision for the world. Uh, and it's not just about nature, but it's also about the places we share. And that's a really, we don't see that happening around. It's uh, the mayors are not into this yet. Uh, they, they will likely be, get there. But I have been totally influenced by about 10 people. And I want to just go through each one of them a little bit, because what they said is the foundation for what, the work that I do. But I think it's the foundation for a whole new revolution in the way we shape our communities, the way we live in them, and the responsibility that we take for them. So this is a fellow who, who uh, started Visa, and he says we don't have a welfare problem, an environmental problem, a crime problem, a climatic change problem, population problem, an economic problem. We don't have an educational problem. They are symptom, not disease. At the bottom, we have an institutional problem, and that's where the core problem is. And until we properly diagnose it and deal with it, all societal problems will get progressively worse. So there's simply no way to govern the diversity and complexity of, of our society today with these separatist, specialist, mechanistic, 17th century concepts of organization. So that's the foundation. And that's, yeah. I, I think of that every day. And I just, I know that we've got to move away from that. And that's what placemaking does and what uh, it can do for everyone or communities around the world. So why we don't have better public spaces, it's fear, crime, narrow development goals, siloed disciplines, project-driven versus place-driven, design-led versus place-led, and government structure and regulations. All of these are set up to prevent the natural, organic ideas that people can have in their community. And I'm going to go through, through that. And when we started working, there were very few disciplines. Uh, and we could pretty much deal with the traffic engineers and transportation people. I used to say, whatever a traffic engineer says, do the opposite. And you're <laughs> your community. And we got jobs to train traffic engineers. So, you know, but then these others too. But they, and crime was, an issue, was a big issue, but we would solve crime by adding positive activity to Bryant Park or Times Square or the Port Authority bus terminal. So we solved those problems by bringing positive uses, and that became the foundation really for in the last 50 years, actually. Today, we have all these disciplines, uh, and they're all terrific. I mean, everyone is really passionate. They're studying very hard. They're 
getting PhDs and all that kind of stuff. But the problem is that each discipline has become its own audience. And they have become silos where they have to be at the table for every kind of uh, transformation or change that occurs in a community. And if they're not there, then we don't get that kind of change. So in a way, what we had to do, placemaking became a way to create systemic change because it was really about doing things quickly. Uh, and a term we came up with, lighter, quicker, cheaper, uh, was getting things to happen quickly and grow them with the, with the uh, support of all these different disciplines. I mean, they're, they're all wonderful, but if they're just stopping you instead of supporting you, you're not going to go anywhere. And so that's why we, we, will, we will say, and, and here the, the communities today are really about all these separate entities. They, they are not next to each other. They're not woven together. Uh, they're not diverse. They're not multi-use. And, uh, and so what we've got is a situation where in order to change and get outcomes, we have all of these ideas that people in communities want on the left, streets as places, architecture of place, markets, multi-use destinations. All of these things are what people are seeking and trying to have happen. But the obstacles are government disciplines uh, and institutions. And so terms like transportation and mobility is about moving people around instead of accessibility. Iconic architecture is uh, awards given by architects for other architects. Institutional buildings are largely obstacles. The disciplines are all siloed in their fields and government is determined by disciplines. And so we're not getting the kind of outcomes, sustainability, resilience, climate change, mitigation, uh, healthy planet. We can't get them because of this giant wall between them. Yes. So what we say is we have to turn everything upside down to get it right side up, <laughs> to get from inadequate to extraordinary. And that's pretty harsh. But uh, we started using that probably about 20 years ago. And it kind of turns some people off. But uh, what we began to find is that more and more people would say, yeah, that's right. And they would try to figure out how to do it, turn it upside down and get it right side up. Today, I think this is almost a universal uh, realization that we really have been doing it wrong. And now with the, the virus we have and uh, the lack of sort of sociability that we can, can, we can engage in, it's really a serious issue because we almost have a third catastrophe and that's isolation and loneliness and depression. So if you take that plus the virus plus climate, you know, we've got three pronged uh, obstacles that are set up that we've got to really overcome them. And, and, and we actually think that the idea of focusing on place uh, really can be a driving force to define the future. So we use this term, which we love. Someone in our office had come up with this. If architecture is frozen music, then urban planning is composition and placemaking is improvisational street performance. And it's that improvisation that really creates the identity in a community, the ownership in a community, uh, the flexibility, the, the inclusion of, for people coming into it. It's a very uh, opening, it's an open process uh, that can really uh, engage people. But because architecture is frozen music and planning is composition, it's not working, it doesn't support this. So if we turn this upside down, and this is gonna be the theme of this talk, uh, we're gonna say that in the future, nothing is the same anymore. And if we turn that phrase I just used, placemaking is improvisation, that comes first. That's the community uh, shaping and defining their vision, their future. Planning is a vision, so it's taking the, the aspirations and, and opportunities that people and communities are trying to attain. Uh, that's what planning can become. And then architecture actually becomes joyous because now they're working in the communities with them to help shape them uh, with the uh, improvisations that people are naturally doing 
Uh, and so we then get the future we want. And that is, this is the big idea, and I'll come back to this at the end. Uh, so it's really about convergence. Instead of having these isolated uh, institutions, uh, organizations, everything becomes multi-use. Schoolyards become multi-use. Parks become multi-use. Uh, transit stops become multi-use. Streets become multi-use. Squares are, are already multi-use, but they integrate the areas around them. So all of these become defined very differently as we move into the future, and that's I'm going to that's where the front of this presentation is going to be. So placemaking is a dynamic human function. It's an act of liberation. It's taking claim of beautification and it's true human empowerment. Uh, and I, from my point of view, every human being is innately a placemaker. And we're all attracted to good places. We thrive in them, regardless of where we live and what kind of a community we live. Uh, and that people are deeply nourished by the process of creating a wholeness. Uh, and that's, so they're not defined by disciplines, they're defined by the feeling of being whole in the neighborhoods and communities that they're in. And that's what, what they can achieve if they're given responsibility to do that. So the wholeness is what uh, helps people to be happy, to be healthy, uh, and so on. So here's the movement, uh, Earth Day in 1970. Uh, and then there were these people that I fell into uh, not as a very young person, but I got to know them. Uh, many of them I worked with or spent time with uh, in those first years. And before we started Project for Public Spaces in 1975, I got a pretty good uh, grounding. And so these are the people. Uh, I studied with Margaret Mead. I worked with Holly White. Uh, Jane Jacobs was one of the first people I met when I started working with Holly White. Alan Jacobs, uh, you know, all these people are really the foundation of the placemaking movement because they were doing not academic research as much as they were doing observational research and, 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 and not trying to academize everything too much. It was more uh, just common sense. So these were really the prime people at that time that were trying to take a different course uh, for cities and communities. And, J and Margaret Mead said, and this, is, I've, this has been my whole life, you know, uh, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Uh, and then Jane Jacobs, you know, intricate minglings of different uses in cities are not a form of chaos. On the contrary, they represent a complex and highly developed form of order. It is so true. Uh, Trying to create order out of architecture and things just takes the soul out of those places. Uh, and defining things by disciplines, traffic, uh, defining how roads are used and so on. So she also said that the erosion of cities by automobiles proceeds as a kind of nibbling. Small at first, eventually hefty bites. A street is widened here, another straightened there. A wide avenue is converted to one-way flow and more land goes into parking. No one step in that process was crucial but cumulative effect is enormous. So the biggest obstacle globally are, is our transportation and street system. It can be 27 to 37% of the land area in a city. And how that is de defined, and if it's defined just for vehicles, you end up with a very, very limited uh, set of uses uh, in a city. And Donald Appleyard, uh, professor at Berkeley, he did. He looked at how people interacted on streets where there was light traffic, the top one, and heavy traffic on the bottom one. It was revolutionary to find that, wow, if there's light, low traffic, people are talking to each other back and forth across the street. But on a high traffic street, very little of that happens. Uh, and then we were in Australia. We were in Sydney, Australia about 30 years ago, and it came out of a meeting, and I caught these eight women right in the middle of the street in, 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 on George Street in Sydney, uh, and trying to get across, a public display of affection. It was really a fear, uh, but they did get across. I'm happy to say I almost lost my life trying to take the picture, but uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really uh, 
this picture. And then the Lord Mayor of Sydney was in our office in New York, and uh, I gave him the picture, and he said hey, he had no control. The traffic engineers were part of the, the pro provincial government, not uh, not uh, they don't answer to me. Yes. Uh, I have no control. So you know that was pretty revolutionary. Yes. So we came up with this phrase, when you design your community around cars and traffic, you get more cars and traffic. And that's what's happening to our street system everywhere in the world. And if you change that and you say, wait a minute, maybe we should design our community around people and places, we'll get more people and places. Right. But no one is doing that. That's not part of, of any agency's uh, responsibility. And that's beginning to change a little bit now, especially because we have no traffic on our streets everywhere in the world. People are beginning to look at the streets as though maybe we should do something different with them uh, than what we've done for the last 70 years, just piling more and more traffic onto them. It doesn't get us anywhere. And, and we come out way, way less in terms of the kind of sense of place that we want to live in. And that's what I think people are finding today as we are going through this horrendous uh, virus, uh, global virus uh, epidemic. So, but then Alan Jacobs, who's, who was the same time as Margaret Mead and those people, he said we can develop and design streets so that they are wonderful, fulfilling places to be, community building places, attractive for all people. And we will have successfully designed about one third of the city directly and will have had an immense impact on the rest. Wow. So that was back in the 19. 70s that he wrote that but people, already uh. it was all all this was laid out back then uh, so it's it's really and then a fellow more recently is a Dutch traffic engineer said if you want vehicles to behave like they're in a village build a village in other words the village comes first the traffic and he does all he did all this stuff on shared space so that he took lights out and made it so that people made eye contact and there was cordiality and and it was a transfer of power from the traffic engineer in the state down to the individual in the community. And that really works, worked and still works beautifully, but it changes the whole dynamic uh, in a neighborhood. So, and then Christopher Alexander, he, he did something called pattern language, which maybe many people know, but he also made this quote, said this about people are deeply nourished by the process of creating wholeness. So what I, my whole life has been seeing that people don't have that chance to create these kind of whole, organic, dynamic, social, sense of place environments, and that's what they want. And when they have it, they thrive. And, uh, and so we're now right at that uh, breaking point, in a sense, people are stuck in their homes and they don't go out, they can't go out, they can't, it's, it's social disconnection is what everyone's trying to get them to do, uh, which is wrong. It should be physical separation and social connections in the context of having uh, the physical separateness. So why can't you talk across the street? Why can't you be uh, six or eight feet apart and have a conversation? Why can't you smile? Why can't you uh, nod? Why can't you wave? I mean, these are all things that are social life that we all have and crave. And we're now told that it should be a physical, a, a, a social separation. That's the wrong language. So, and then you get Jan Gale and Holly White. You know, nothing in the world is more simple or more cheap than making cities that provide better for people. That is so true because it's so many little things that add up. It's the lighter, quicker, cheaper that make the place really work well. Uh, and then Holly White, who I worked with, who says, I end in praise of small spaces. The multiplier effect is tremendous. You can imagine this, that the more places you have, the, the, the better opportunities you have. There's so many things that wrap around this. It's not the number of people using them or the larger number passing by and enjoying them very vicariously or even the larger number who feel better about the city center for knowledge of them. Their city such places are priceless, whatever the cost. They build a set of basics and they're right in front of our noses if we will look. So that was that's my whole career is looking, observing, understanding, and helping to shape uh, for people in communities. It's really community organizing. It isn't defined by a discipline. It's defined by creating the place that people feel whole and comfortable and alive, engaged, and and, and their lives are have a purpose to them.
so Holly White, he was a, he was really good at creating phrases, and this is one. It's hard to create a space that will not attract people. What is remarkable is how often it's been accomplished. Uh, it was actually the Boston uh, City Hall Plaza in Boston, and it's exactly the same today as it was 50 years ago. Uh, and then he also said, if you want to see the place with activity, put out food. So one of our great pleasures is observing people eating ice cream. Uh, and we take pictures, and uh, there's one eating French fries. So those two are people go buy the ice cream, and they all sit there. The problem in the guy on the left, he doesn't, he's not quite in unison uh, <laughs> with the, the other three. Uh, and then this is just an amazing picture, because if you look at it, the only person that doesn't have ice cream is that little kid. And I said, oh my God, I said, this is amazing. So then I got it, I got ready, I took a next picture and there he was looking at me saying, <laughs> you know that I don't have ice cream, so blah. <laughs> uh, so that was, I mean, that's, that's what it was. So, and then one of the best things about water is the look and feel of it. It's not right to put water before people and keep them away from it. Uh, and so when you get these places that people just can't stay away from, uh, they come and the joy is so great. And then this is wonderful because, you know, benches are artifacts, the purpose of which is to punctuate architectural photographs. They're not so good for sitting. So, uh, you know, and that's what they do all, all around the world. Uh, seating is just sort of the last thing people think about. And so there's a real, uh, a desert of seating that, that and people are finding this out now when they're walking more than, than uh, driving. Exactly. Uh, there's no place to sit. And so those cities that, that are comfortable and that think about this are the ones that are going to thrive in the future. And so when you get a bench that's nine foot long and one that's four feet, it's very hard to get more people into a four foot bench than there is a nine foot bench. Uh, if you have movable seating, people will even stay in the rain. Infection mm -hmm. is, is something that happens in good places. Uh, and, and that's always a sign that, that, that people are happy and comfortable. Uh, these are th three generations of women giggling on a bench that someone donated in a town in California. Uh, and when people really get comfortable, they take their shoes off. Uh, so these are all indicators of, of success. Uh, and even just rubbing your dog's stomach, uh, know that that's about, that's as blissful as it can be. So we say that when you focus on place, you really do everything differently. It's the place that is so critical and it's what people, where people thrive. And so how, how do we get that? So this is where, uh, Kathy actually wrote this book called how to turn a place around. And that was sort of a big shift for us because before that, we were kind of thought, we, well, we did thought, but we were the experts on public space. Uh, and uh, when we wrote this book, there were 11 principles and the first principle was the community is the expert. And the second one is you're creating a place, not just a design. And the third one is you can't do it alone. And the fourth one is if they say it can't be done, it doesn't always work out that way. So the community is the expert freed us. And we really felt it was sort of like a, a uh, catharsis for us because, you know, you really can't be the expert in a profession. It's the community that knows what they want to do. And so when we put that out, we absolutely became bonded or bound by that idea that the community is the expert. And it just turned us into facilitators and resource people and community organizers and getting resources that, that we've gotten all along and what we're still doing of where people are, feel good and where they thrive uh, and showing them that these are things that they can have and they can have quickly. So placemaking, uh, everyone knows it. Uh, and people are really good at it. Uh, uh, except when you get into a profession where you start taking on another agenda that isn't about people, uh, traffic engineers and architects often. And so you're, you get, you, you don't get that kind of holistic 
kind of process where all kinds of things coming together make a place comfortable. So placemaking is a community process. It's organic, it localizes, it's economic development, scale to each community, it creates social and place capital, and the outcomes are healthy, sustainable, and viable communities. And this, I won't go into it, but it's uh, very much, but the benefits of great places, it builds democracy and civil society, promotes health, renews downtowns and neighborhoods, it nurtures a sense of community, it builds local economic opportunity, brings diverse people together. Those are fantastic goals. And so that's really the goal of, of, of everyone's place should be something like that. So when we started working, one of the things, this is a very old photograph, as you can tell, uh, with Holly White, I uh, did a study in the day of the life of a wastebasket there. Uh, and uh, uh, it was really quite interesting because uh, what happened is, uh, is that a, um, uh, that wastebasket has a flat top with a hole in it. And uh, this, I was taking time-lapse photography and this man came along with a newspaper, put it into that throat, and then about three minutes later, another man came along and pulled it out, looked at it, and didn't want it, put it back in. And then five minutes later, someone in a suit came and just took it. And so there was sort of a recycling yeah. there, the way the wastebasket was designed. And then this, just a little further down the block, was this uh, antique shop. And you can see where the window is canted, so the people walking by on the inside were, would see the window more easily. It was next to a bank. I went in there and the man who owned the store, I asked him, said, you must like your, your location because there are 39,000 people walking by here every day. Uh, and he said, no, I don't because I'm next to a bank and people start walking faster when they go by a bank. And he says it takes them two or three stores to get back into a window shopping rhythm. Wow. That was, that was a revolution. Yes. Uh, and I never stopped thinking of that. Uh, and that's what the street looked like at that time. There were probably 20 businesses, uh, some on the second floor. Uh, it was as busy as it could be. It was crowded. And then what happened, like so many other blocks, took the life out of it. It became that. So this became that. Yeah. And like my city. It's, 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 it's a disaster. It just takes, it means you come to the, into the building that you don't do any of that kind of wonderful kind of street life, street activity. And there's a whole lot of other stories that I learned by studying that block. And then this in New Haven uh, was one that we were, we were actually asked to implement and work on. Uh, and so this is a key corner across from Yale University. And uh, we put a plan together to widen the sidewalks and the upper is what it looks like as they were doing the construction. And we took the corner and bulged it out and created a destination there. And Yale University is right across the street. And we narrowed the lanes to nine feet so that the traffic went slow. Uh, and this is what we ended up with, a great social gathering place right at the entrance to Yale University. And, that, and then it sort of went down the, down the block. But that, that hasn't happened very much. Uh, and, and it really should be happening at every intersection. And then this is something that Kathy and I were in Munich and looking at the a market there, the Victual market. And we started noticing something. We were there during the night when there was, the stores weren't open and that uh, tree guard was there. And then the next day we came and someone put out these two boards. And uh, it was amazing I mean, that you uh -huh. could see a, a more ugly, grubby looking thing, but people sat on it. And it was right between a uh, uh, juice bar and a soup bar. And so this was the connection between the two. And guess what? It's a great social place. And people would put there, as you see, the, their drink between them. And they wouldn't be there that long. So the next, so there's a very high turnover, but it became this subtle little thing that provided comfort <laughs> at a very high level uh, that no designer would have ever built. It would have made it probably uncomfortable, but this was what made it work.
Yeah. Uh, and then the big, I'm going from that little, those little things collectively in a, in a market or on a street are what bring a, a street alive. And in Detroit, we were, uh, <laughs> we were involved a lot. I'm not going to go into it. There's a, there's a longer story, but uh, this was the biggest change globally in the last 75 years. Wow. Without hesitation, nothing has happened at this level of transformation anywhere. Maybe except in Europe, where cities were totally bombed, uh, they might come back. But that was 75 years ago, I guess. Yes, yes. So, but this happened uh, 10 years ago. Wow. So, Detroit in 1917 uh, was this. This is one of the busiest cities in the United States. And this is the center of Detroit, streetcars, all this stuff. And that monument there in the middle did not move because in 1999, that's the monument. Wow. So go back there and everything disappeared around it. And we got that in 1999. Now, there's some things that happened between then and 2012. Uh, when we did a placemaking vision for downtown Detroit. And this vision with Dan Gilbert, who owns Quicken Loans, uh, he bought 95 buildings, and his whole approach was lighter, quicker, cheaper uh, activations. And he couldn't put any retail in the buildings, they were all empty. Uh, and so he had to work on the public spaces. So he activated the public spaces uh, on a lighter, quicker, cheaper uh, process, just doing things. And the first thing we did was a vision for downtown Detroit uh, in 2013. And we built it, or we didn't, but they built it in, in there. And this is the result. It's just a phenomenal transformation. Um, and what we put in the center of Detroit was a beach. Uh, and, uh, and that's what it looks like today, uh, and in the, at nighttime, and this is the beach around the monument, uh, and these are the games. So this is all program driven. It's, you know, the, it's color, it's programming. It's really, it's not a kind of high design at all. It's program, which is actually more design because there's so many aspects of all of these things, beer garden. Uh, and market stalls, temporary market stalls. And so this became the center of Detroit and Detroit is on a renaissance and this is a renaissance like nothing anyone has ever seen in any city anywhere in the world. It's really quite, quite extraordinary. And this is Dan Gilbert playing with a, a local piano player uh, together. And then he worked on the rest of the downtown. So now we're, we're back we're up to where uh, the, the placemaking movement has really been launched, and uh, which is in 2013. And we set up something called the Placemaking Leadership Council. And so now, where we are, and this is where we're I'm jumping ahead to where we are right now, with something we call the Social Life Project and Placemaking X. But there, in, in all of our work, we began to realize that there are key uh, activities that if collectively done can transform cities everywhere. Uh, and they really are a whole series of, of activations and there are things like bringing a public square back, using markets to strengthen neighborhoods, turning streets into places, applying design as a tool for creating destinations, spawning new community hubs, capitalizing on the appeal of waterfronts, expanding cultural destinations, uh, strengthening assets that express a city's character and highlighting a community's identity by creating great amenities. So I'll go each, to each one of these a little bit just quickly to show, you know, when you bring back the public square, we don't have a culture of squares uh, in the world. Historically in Europe, there were squares because of the way the streets were, the, the cities were laid out. Uh, and today we really don't. We use parks as the public gathering places, but squares are really the most important because they're totally dynamic and uh, 
and, and program-driven, flexible, managed. Uh, and that's what we did in, in Detroit there in Campus Martius. But we also did this in Harvard University, where this is Harvard Yard in the middle and Harvard Square on the left and the Harvard Plaza on the, on the right. And uh, in one day, after 350 years without any amenities in the middle of, the, of uh, Harvard Yard, uh, we put out chairs and tables. And so that was absolutely transformative. It changed the whole, uh, whole feeling of the university because now people in the community could come in and sit. Uh, and, and it had become uh, co-ed, so it was, it was a totally transformation. And then we worked on this, which was an empty plaza, and created uh, the square, which was uh, highly programmed with food trucks and amenities and games and so on. So those are catalytic opportunities at a university, and you can do those in a lot of places. So the next idea was markets uh, to strengthen neighborhoods. This is a really big deal because markets are incubators for small businesses, for connecting people with other people, for sharing skills, uh, creating local jobs. And so you get these kinds of markets, and this is in Seattle, Pike Place Market, which is uh, a legend and a, an anchor in Seattle. Uh, and uh, all these things are going on, and it's one of those places that everyone visits all the time, and there are markets all over the world like this um, that are our main centers of activity, but the idea of doing small neighborhood markets is one where you can really bring people into it and small jobs can be created and social action activities can be uh, heightened. And then turning streets into the places, I talked a little bit about this before, uh, repurposing space for people in intersections, street corners, city blocks, all of these things are game. The street should no longer be curb to curb, that the intersection building to building is what is, is available and how you design that and program that for public use and, and social gatherings uh, can have an enormous impact on the life of a community. Uh, this is actually in Buenos Aires where uh, this is a street uh, in the morning and, uh, and then during the day it becomes almost impossible to drive through. So it becomes the, the square, the neighborhood gathering place in that, in that neighborhood. And this is a place in London where beautifully designed, but the, it's not about cars, it's about people and people being able to be in the street and safe and comfortable. Uh, and how do you design a uh, neighborhood to be safe? You change the whole structure of a road. When you come into the neighborhood, you change it. Uh, you have wider sidewalks and there's so many opportunities and such a need for changing the whole way transportation is, is uh, 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 imply, in, imposed on us in our communities. And with this uh, uh, COVID-19, we're all realizing that, boy, it's nicer to walk down the middle of a street without any traffic than it is on a narrow sidewalk. Uh, and so people are, you see these little things going on all over where people are, want the streets back and not just this massive amount of traffic just destroying our neighborhoods. And then architecture as a, as a tool for creating a sense of place, it's really rare that you see really good uh, design that's human and that's human scale, that's social. And, uh, you know, one place is Miami Beach. Uh, where uh, you really, you, you, the buildings are, are, are fairly short, they're colorful, the, uh, the, the porches are set up a little bit so you can see down as people go by. You literally walk by uh, in the, where people are eating. Uh, so it becomes really quite an experience for everyone. And it's that kind of openness that uh, really is good for the future of architecture. And then new community hubs uh, in, in Perth, Australia, we took this uh, cultural district and we turned it into a, uh, and this was done by a local uh, television broadcaster who had a lot of interest in plants. Uh, he did this uh, and he took this place in the lower corner there and turned it into that and the whole place was transformed with similar community uh, 
uh, activists that came in and took this cultural center and turned it into a major destination uh, in Perth. So capitalizing on the appeal of waterfronts, uh, this is something that's going on in many places in really rich ways. We just got back from Brisbane, uh, Australia, working on their waterfront. Uh, but Porto probably has the best waterfront in the world. Uh, it's on a hill sloping down. They're small buildings. They're not massive hotels and stuff. It's just a, a very kind of local, organic, incredibly interesting place that people come from all over the world because it's truly one of the better waterfronts anywhere. Uh, and then expanding cultural destinations uh, is a whole other possibility. It's wonderful to see what Paris does. This is a library that's on the banks of the Seine. Uh, these are exhibits that are right next to Musée d'Orsay that are on the water. Uh, people, they put out a blackboard and people are drawing on it, which is very original seating. This is where uh, they put their art. They're obviously fake photographs, but people get a good sense of what the, the art is in this, in this tunnel that used to be a road. And then strengthening assets uh, for a city's character. Uh, things like this, uh, this is in Stockholm, but these kinds of uh, centerpieces uh, just draw people in and they do everything you can imagine, rolling on the fake turf, sitting on the lions, uh, but it's a real central feature that just sort of makes everyone feel like they're all part of the same uh, large community. Uh, and so it's and then, then just the idea of creating amenities. Uh, this is really probably one of the weakest things for most cities is that they don't really get down to this level. And uh, these benches are fantastic. Uh, you can get all kinds of people sitting facing out or facing in, uh, or this, uh, where some of those people are connected and some aren't, but they're all sitting there uh, finding a way to make that bench work for them face-to-face uh, -face. Uh, and some of these places where we, we like to find places where there's a lot of affection uh, and there are there I promise you there are places in a whole big park and you can go to some of these places and you know that you're always going to find something where <laughs> affectionate so uh, it's, it's amazing how places organically draw people to the places that they, <laughs> they saw. So going back to this, and as I close, you know, this is really critical. This is a big, big idea. If it's architecture's frozen music, you know, it's static. It doesn't have life to it. And planning is just sort of numbers and zoning and stuff like that. And then you've got this amazing thing going on where people are beginning to realize that they should be, have some impact on the places they live. And so they're the improvisers. They create the performance that, that goes on on a street. And uh, if you turn that upside down, and here we found this fellow who likes to blow his horn, horns, <laughs> this is a big idea. So it's very exciting to think that, boy, if we do turn things upside down to get it right side up, we can really get from inadequate to extraordinary. And, uh, and so by turning that phrase up by making placemaking as an improvisation first for communities to determine where they want to go. Planning then becomes supporting the vision and then architecture creates the happy music to let it make it happen. So if we say now that nothing is going to be the same when we come out of this morass or this very serious thing we're all in, uh, that's actually gets to be pretty exciting. So we can, if we want to, we can get the future we want. And, and that's where placemaking comes in. And what we find is we're always looking for the zealous nuts in a community. And we're finding ways to breed zealous nuts, to uh, give them authority, to give them support. Because vision, they're visionaries with a poorly developed sense of fear and no concept of the odds against them. They make the impossible happen. So zealous nuts are people who don't know what they can't do. And that was Dan Gilbert in uh, Detroit. And he kept doing it. He, lighter, quicker, cheaper became his mantra. And he would just do things and, and, and just go on and, and just keep doing. Had a whole team of people that were doing that. So 
Every human being is innately a placemaker if we, re if we recognize that. We're all attracted to good places. We thrive in them. Wherever you are, whatever culture, whatever income level you're in, people are deeply nourished by the process of creating wholeness. Uh, and so the strategy for implementation is you create energetic anchors of activity. We call it the power of 10. Do an ev evaluation exercise. Do lighter, quicker, cheaper. Short term, one to four months. Long term is two years. And you're never finished. You crowdsource ideas. And placemaking is community organizing. There is a convergence of movements now as we scale this up to get to the climate issues uh, that place uh, enhances all of these things. It, uh, an outcome of good places is environmental sustainability, is local food systems, is transportation, is preservation, energy and consumption, resilience, uh, society, civic build, civil society. All of these are enhanced by place, and the outcomes uh, support all of these, these movements. And then the benefits of places, these are the social benefits. It's about identity. It's about interaction. It's about a diverse population. It's about health. It's about accessibility, and it's about local economy. These, these benefits are very powerful. And if you focus on bringing these benefits and this whole uh, outcome uh, has a big impact on climate uh, and sustainability and resilience and health, all these things, you really begin to see the whole picture come together that really the place, the placemaking, the place governance, the place-led development is really the direction that we need to go in. And so Going back to Holly White, this lesson that I learned a long time ago, so small spaces, the multiplier effect is tremendous. They're all there, they're right all with an eye if we just, if we just look. Uh, and so our, our social life project, Google it uh, and look at this, the global catastrophe will be solved by local communities. That's what we believe and we believe that's really the only way to go. Uh, to create a planet that we want to live in and be proud of in the future. So these are the organizations that we've set up in the last couple of years. Uh, they're global in nature. Uh, they're networked. So it's no longer uh, us as an organization. It's us as a network, uh, sharing, working together with people all over the world. And it is one of the greatest pleasures of my career to be able to very comfortably go anywhere and just find these enormously creative people trying to do things, finding ways to help them, show them something, uh, report what they're doing. They're all over the world and they're all uh, working together to create a planet we want to live in and communities that we want to be part of. Thank you so much, Fred, sure. for, for everything you shared with us, for your magic, for your inspiration and experience. Thank you very much. Thank you for watching Urbanistica Talks or listening to Urbanistica Podcast. Don't forget to follow on Instagram and subscribe the YouTube channel. And also don't forget to check in Placemaking X and the Social Life Project. I am Mustafa Sharif. Have a good life.